So I want to tell you, early on in seminary, uh, maybe you kids haven't heard that word, it's a school for ministers. So early on in seminary, I remember one of my teachers in seminary using the word exegesis. And I was confused. Exegesis. I thought to myself, eggs, I hear eggs, and I hear Jesus. Is this, what is this? Is this Easter Jesus? What is this? Exegesis. And then my professor used the word in a different context and said, let's exegete this story. And I realized the word might not be about Jesus at all. <laughs> exegesis. It's a big, confusing word. Do you want to just say it with me so you can feel its weirdness in your mouth? Exegesis. Exegesis. Yes, exegesis. It means essentially tracking down the meaning of a sacred text, tracking down the meaning of the words of a holy scripture or a text. Exegesis is kind of like following the clues to find a hidden treasure on a treasure map. So when my teacher used this word, she was talking about how we understand and make meaning of a story, how we see the deeper things that are happening in this story. That is exegetical work, and its purpose is to see what's hidden in the text. So when we sing, Jesus Christ is risen today, we might need to do some exegetical work, interpreting the text of this hymn. Or else there might be some in this room who are left sort of scratching our heads, wondering, what does it mean for me or for a room full of people? I'm thinking most of you in this room, not all, but most of you probably don't believe in a real, literal resurrection. So what does it mean to sing about literal resurrection? So let's dig in. Let's do some exegetical work. When some people talk about Jesus and his life and the resurrection, it all gets interpreted, kind of boiled down to this particular question. And the question is, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? He died on the cross and then was resurrected into eternal life. And if the answer is no, you're in trouble. <laughs> if the answer is yes, then you're saved and resurrection is guaranteed. Here's what troubles me. In a deeply interconnected and interdependent world, does that interpretation, does that interpretation, this sort of focus on hyper-individualism, this sense of personal sin, personal salvation, and then personal resurrection, does that, unhooked from everything else, from everyone else, does that even make sense? Or is this a cheap, immoral interpretation of resurrection, if we fail to talk about resurrection and the well-being of an entire community, of, a tire, of an entire people, of a country, or a state, or a world. That's what troubles me about that interpretation. And I'm reminded of a practice from the Maasai people of Africa. As I understand this practice, I've never experienced it, I've read about it. As I understand it, when the Maasai people greet one another, there's a series of exchanges, but always in that exchange is the question, and how are the children? And how are the children? There's a recognition in this greeting with one another that if the children aren't well, the village or the community isn't well, no matter if there are individuals or families that are doing well. And how are the children? In this framing, it doesn't matter if you are saved, if the children or the community is hurting or hungry or scared. In the context of interconnected community, 
I would argue it is religious hogwash to think about salvation and resurrection in personal terms only. So when we sing, Jesus Christ has risen today, we're interpreting this song. We're finding hidden clues in that hymn that point to the fact that Jesus died as an individual but rose as a community. We sing this song with an understanding that a community can rise up, can come to life, can emerge from the fear that binds and constricts it, can shed despair and hopelessness, can claim a moral voice and beat back the forces of death, the forces of racism and militarism of environmental degradation. When we sing this song, we are celebrating something true and profound that there is a spirit alive in the world over which death has no dominion, a light that no darkness can extinguish. That spirit has been alive in Dr. Martin Luther King. That spirit is still alive. That spirit was alive in Jesus. It is alive today. That spirit was alive in Harriet Tubman. It is alive today. That spirit is alive in the indigenous and people of color leaders and the young folks who are calling out the gun industry. That spirit is alive today. There is a light that no darkness can extinguish. You don't have to believe literal resurrection to believe in that spirit. In fact, early in his life when Dr. King was in seminary, he wrote about the resurrection. Dr. King was almost, by some accounts, a Unitarian Universalist. He had those leanings. I'm not making this up. You can read about this. I'm not making this up. He was a scholar, that the Unitarian side of our family, that deep scholarly, rational tradition anchored him in many ways. So when he was in seminary, he wrote about the resurrection. He said this, he said, the external evidence for the authenticity of this doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection is found wanting. And from a literary, historical, and philosophical point of view, this doctrine raises many questions. Those are the words of Dr. King. He went on to say, however, that perhaps these early Christians had had such a powerful experience of Jesus' charisma and passion and personality, his justice-seeking spirit, that they began to believe that he could never die. And that when he did die, in the most horrific, the most traumatic of ways, their connection to him, their connection to his teachings, their connection to the vision of what could be in this world that was so strong and so present in and among them that it was as if Jesus had come back from the dead, was there with them, encouraging them to keep on keeping on. Remember the story Ruth told about the dog, Happy. That spirit lived on for Matteo and Roberta. Roberta. In the same way, after his death, Jesus lived on because his call to comfort others, to quit blaming victims, to quit gossiping about other people's sins, to be generous with the hungry, to start giving yourself to the down and out, because that message lived on and the disciples amplified that message and their lives began to glow in the darkness. In other words, Jesus died as an individual but rose as a community that embodied those teachings. This is not a story about 2,000 years ago. This is a story about right now, right now. And here's what I mean. 50 years ago, in 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King was just on the edge of launching the Poor People's Campaign, 50 years ago. 
He looked out at the landscape of this country and he could see advances had been made in the arena of civil rights, but Dr. King and others realized that the material conditions, the pay, the education, the housing, the opportunities, the building of generational wealth, particularly for African Americans and people of color and poor people, those conditions weren't improving at all. Dr. King was convinced that the focus had to be on more than civil rights. The focus had to be on essential human rights, the right to a living wage or basic salary, the right to affordable housing, the right to adequate education, the right to basic health care. So Dr. King and many others began to dream of the Poor People's Campaign, a campaign that would bring to the nation's capital poor people from around the country to make visible the reality that millions of adults and children in this country, this richest country in the world, to make visible that reality to the leaders of this country. In early 1968, King shared specific demands for the Poor People's Campaign. This is in 1968. He said, we need to have $30 billion for anti-poverty efforts. We need to have a guaranteed government commitment to full employment, to a guaranteed income, and the annual construction of a half a million affordable homes. The Poor People's Campaign was designed to be more than a march. Its goal was to have this extended occupation of the National Mall in Washington. And before his death, Dr. King laid out a vision for the Poor People's Campaign. He said this, we are not coming to tear up Washington. We are not coming to demand that the government address itself, sorry, excuse me, we are coming to demand that the government address itself to the problem of poverty. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among those are the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But if a person doesn't have a job or an income, or he, then he, has, he or she has neither life nor liberty nor the possibility for the pursuit of happiness. They merely exist. Dr. King said, we are coming to ask America to be true to the huge promissory note that it signed years ago. And we are coming to engage in dramatic nonviolent action to call attention to the gulf between promise and fulfillment to make the invisible visible. He ended with this, why do we do it this way? Why this occupation of the National Mall? We do it this way because of our experience that the nation doesn't move around questions of genuine equality for the poor and for black people and for native people and Hispanics and poor white folks until it is confronted massively, dramatically in terms of direct action. When an assassin's bullet ended Dr. King's life, Reverend Ralph Abernathy took the reins and moved the campaign forward. The first demonstrators began to arrive on May 12, 1968, by car and by bus, and there was a mule train caravan that left from Marks, Mississippi, one of the poorest cities, one of the poorest counties in the, in the nation, and slowly made its way to Washington, D.C. One of the coverings on one of the, the wagons that these mules were pull, pulling had this sign on it that said, don't laugh, fool, Jesus was a poor man. The campaign brought 3,000 people to the National Mall. 3,000 was the limit for the permit they had in order to occupy the mall for a series of weeks. And soon, the land was filled with wooden shanties, a city hall, a general store, a health clinic, and much more. The name of the city that sprang up, Resurrection City. The goal of this effort was to find resurrection in this lifetime. 
through nonviolent moral force, the poor of all races could find new life, new support, new hope as the leaders of this rich nation began to make material amends. This is not a story about 50 years ago. This is a story about right now. On this Easter Sunday, we are being called to rise from the tomb of numbness, of powerlessness, of the hopelessness we might feel. Because right now, in 2018, the Poor People's Campaign is resuming, putting out a national call for moral revival. That's what that insert in your order of service is about. You can take a look at it if you want to. The goal of this campaign is to unite tens of thousands of people across race and class and faith to challenge the evils of systemic racism, poverty, the war economy, ecological devastation, and the nation's distorted morality. This campaign, which lives on in the spirit of the original Poor People's Campaign is calling for a season of nonviolence, is calling for a season of massive civil disobedience and moral revival to save the heart and soul of this democracy. This campaign begins on Monday, May 14th at the state capitol, and then will continue with actions each Monday through June 11th, mirroring the length of the original campaign. The vision is that across this land, beginning May 14th, there will be simultaneous actions in every state as thousands of people occupy our house, the people's house, the capital, and demand a moral revolution. This campaign is not about left and right, Democrat or Republican, but about right and wrong. And I want First Universalists to participate in this campaign. There will be trainings for nonviolent actions, for civil disobedience. You don't have to do those things, but know there will be support for those things. Local communities, each time there's an action at the Capitol, local communities, on the ground communities, most impacted by immoral policies will be leading the action we will be following and amplifying their voices. So I invite you to fill out this card in your order of worship, to put it in the offering basket, to return it to the church office, figure out how you can participate. Why? Why am I asking you for this? Because this is Easter embodied. Because showing up and rising up to build a community of justice is Easter embodied. Why am I asking you this? Because how are the children? How are the immigrants among us? How are the unemployed among us? How are the homeless veterans among us? How are the children among us? It's not enough to say, I'm okay, my life is all right, I'm saved, when our community and country is so clearly not okay. And so friends, on this Easter Sunday, let the teachings of Jesus, let the teachings of Dr. King, let the teachings of all the saints and the prophets, let their teachings rise up in us. Let us strive to create the conditions for resurrection in this lifetime for new life in this lifetime, community after community, city after city, country after country. May it be so. I dearly love you. Happy Easter.